0: all right great great when you think about a wonderful place what comes to mind you don't get to say it out loud I get to log cabin chick-fil-a flying burger teriyaki grill Logan's there's a lot of any donut place amen would you agree with that Any donut place God created is a wonderful place. You know, obviously, where my mind is, and we'll be out of here soon to go eat. So that uh, keeps you going that place. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew 21, if you have your Bibles. And we're going to talk about the church. We've been in a series on being sane in an insane world. We're jumping out of that for one week. We'll be back in it next week for four or five weeks. And you might say, okay... I thought you were going to talk about depression, I'm depressed, and you're going to preach on the church, and now I'm going to be more depressed. Hopefully that's not the case. Why does uh, a sermon on the church matter to you, or why does it matter to me? I think it matters deeply to every person in this room. First of all, if you're a member of this church, what kind of church we are is huge. And how you contribute to that is huge. If you're looking for a church to be a part of, I want to share with you what God says about the church and what we want to be here, what we truly desire to be. And so hopefully you'll say, hey, I would love to be a part of that. And maybe you're here today or you're watching on the Internet. You're not a Christian. Maybe you're an atheist. You're far from God. I, I tell you, when the church is really the church, it's a beautiful thing, and it draws people to Jesus and to itself. So I want to begin with that thought. The church should be a wonderful place. The church absolutely should be a wonderful place. How many of you agree with that? Should, you think it should be? It, it, it really should be. Churches are a lot of things, though, aren't they? They're good places, bad places, not so good, fairly good. Have you ever heard of a redneck church? Yes, yeah, some of you have been part of those churches. Now, I'm going to use the word redneck. Redneck in this today, it's, it's almost become a negative term. But really, redneck is beyond race or ethnicity. Uh, I, I'm a, a white guy who knows a lot of white rednecks. I mean, I've lived in Tennessee, Louisiana, and Texas. I know white rednecks. I've got African-American friends who are rednecks. I know Hispanics who are rednecks. Years ago, some family of mine went to... Uh, Alaska, and they came back and they said, we saw some Eskimos who are rednecks. I'm not making that up. That's incredible. What is a redneck church like? This is a good thing to see if your church or our church is a redneck church. If the church voted against buying a chandelier because none of the members knew how to play it, you might be a redneck church. If the opening day of deer season, we could say duck season, is a church holiday, you might be a redneck church. If the pastor calls for Bubba to come and pray for the offering and four men and two women come forward to pray, you might be a redneck church. If most of the members of your church believe the word rapture is when someone lifts something too heavy, you might be a redneck church. And I love the last one. You know you're in a redneck church if the communion wine is Boone's Farm tickled pink. Amen and amen. A lot of you don't know what that is, but that's alcohol, so that's... uh, (laughs) <laughs> the church in the new testament the word church is you can define it two ways it's all christians of all era in other words that peter james and john and you and me are all part of the church that's cool isn't it we're all part of the church baptist methodist catholic presbyterian everybody that knows jesus christ we're all part of the church isn't that good that, i think it's that's a great thing but The predominant usage of the word church in the New Testament is a local church, a local Baptist church, a local Catholic church, a local Presbyterian church, a local non denominational church. Curtis Vaughn was a New Testament scholar, he's in heaven now. He was considered one of the the best Greek scholars in the world at one time. And he said the the word church is found 115 times in the New Testament. 90 to 100 times, it's not talking about some universal mysterious church. It's talking about a local church. People say, I hate organized religion. That's, That's the local church. It's organized religion coming together. And it's a great thing. By the way, Jesus loves the church. Did you know that? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife. I make my wife repeat that every day at breakfast. You know I'm kidding, don't you? That doesn't mean bully. That just means leader. He's the leader of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of what? The church. And the church is his body. Listen, Jesus Christ is the head of a real church. And we are his body. We are his hands and feet to the world. You may not like the way your body looks, but you do love your body, don't you? And your body matters. If you don't believe me, let me pinch you really hard after church. Your, your body matters to you. If you're married, a married man, your bride is special to you. In, in John chapter 2, verse 17, now this story we're going to see in Matthew 21 is told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In John's version, listen to what it says at the end of it. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It'll consume Jesus. Those There's two words there, zeal and consume. These are words of emotion. The word zeal, when you're zealous about tech, or you're zealous about LSU, or when you're zealous about the Patriots or Eagles, whoever it is, man, you have a passion. And it says Jesus is zealous about His house, that would have been the temple, but also the church. And in fact, it says it consumes him. In my study this week, when I was trying to find what does the biblical word consume mean, I couldn't find any good definitions. I mean, it's like you're being eaten up with something. You're consumed with anger, consumed with bitterness. But it can, obviously, it's a positive saying that Jesus is consuming. He is passionate and driven about his church. Isn't that pretty cool? When it comes to church, Jesus Christ is flat out passionate. He is consumed with it. And if Jesus is passionate, consumed with it, and it's his body, we are his body, we ought to be wonderful. Amen. We should be. But here's the second thing this morning. A lot of churches are not. A lot of churches aren't great churches. A pastor in Omaha, Nebraska made a mistake one Sunday morning. He gave, uh, they had the little kids in church, and he gave them a card. He goes, write me something you thought about the service or the sermon on the card. I want to read it when I got home. He probably retired that afternoon. There were several things that were written were funny, but one of them was one little boy named Ralph said, Dear Pastor, I loved your sermon, especially when it was over. That's good for our self-esteem, by the way. But sometimes you go to church and you're going, Oh, my goodness, this is brutal, brutal, brutal. Please don't be feeling that way now, but people do. Here's a more serious note. The Southern Baptist Convention, in our church, affiliates with the Southern Baptist Convention. They don't control us. They don't run us. In fact, we give money to them. They don't give money to us. We help them. And we're a part of them for mission purposes. And it's it's the largest non-Catholic denomination in America. Southern Baptist Convention in 2017, here's what we, we heard at our Southern Baptist Convention. We had lost a million members in recent years. Our denomination is on a 10-year slide going backwards. We have been the most evangelistic winning people to Christ baptizing them in a denomination in, in America for a while. Our baptisms last year hit a 70-year low, 70-year low. Tom Rayner uh, is the president of Lifeway, which you've seen Lifeway Bookstore. Merrick calls him Thom because he spells his name T-H-O-M, but he really calls it Tom. And... <laughs> Tom Rayner does a lot of research, and Tom Raynor said in America, the Christian country, that eighty percent of churches—and what you got four hundred in Ruston—so just think about that. Eighty percent of churches are sick, are very sick. Now he didn't mean like they're they're impure sick, but like they're they're in trouble. And another ten percent. Well, by the way, that 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 number translates to one hundred and fifty thousand churches that are in trouble with another 10 percent that are dying because sometimes churches die because communities die i mean if everybody moves out then you're you you can not have 15 churches anymore some are going to close but also there's a problem churches we're missing the population has not decreased in these last 10 years in fact it's going up up and up why is the church why is the church failing Why is the church not wonderful? What can we do to make sure we are wonderful? Let's start with a negative. Let me show you from Matthew 21 some things that create a not-so-wonderful church. Number one, selfish human agendas. Some churches are just ran by selfish human agendas, whether it's the the priest, the preacher, the deacons, the lay leaders, whoever. In verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats who sold the pigeons. Jesus did not win friends and influence people that morning, did he? Jesus was getting with it. Now let me show you in just a second, I'm going to show you the temple But this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means to see a light. And it it has it at the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, this is going to be literally the the nail that drives Jesus to the cross. This is going to get him crucified at the end of this very week. John has it at the beginning of his ministry, so it happened twice. It happened when Jesus began his ministry, and then it happened at the end. Now, to understand kind of what was happening, because you've heard this story, a lot of you since you were a little kid, what, what was going on? Let me show you, first of all, the temple, because this is important. This is the temple proper. There's where you would have the holy place and the holy of holies. That's where the presence of God uh, at one time, not in this temple, but one time the Ark of the Covenant sat. Now, we have another picture Uh, And this is a kind of a diagram of the temple. And and as strange as this may sound, this is really important to understand the story. The the temple is basically four consecutive courts, kind of concentric courts. It starts with the court of Gentiles. Now, if you're a non-Jew, which most of us in here probably are, this is the only place in the temple we could go to. Then there's the court of women. Now, it's kind of strangely named because men could go in here, but Jewish women could go in here and Jewish men. We could not, a non-Jew could not go in there. The court of Israel was the court of men. That's where Jewish men could go. And there's the court of priests where you have the holy place in there and then the holy of holies and only the, high, uh, the, only the priests could go in there. This is happening in the court of Gentiles. This is happening on the week of Passover, one of the Jewish people's most celebrated uh, holidays. So there's thousands and thousands of people here. Many of them are non-Jewish people. And the only place they can go is to the court of Gentiles. So you get there. Let's say you're a a non-Jewish person, but you worship God. So you go to the court of Gentiles. You've got to bring something to offer as a sacrifice. Let's say You're poor. The Bible, the Old Testament says a poor person, instead of bringing a lamb or, or a cow or whatever, can bring a pigeon or a dove. So you get to the temple with your pigeon or dove, and the inspectors look at it because it, it had to meet a certain standard, and they go, up, uh, that's not of good quality. But guess what? Right behind here, we have a pigeon for you that meets the standard. And by the way, this is going to cost you an exorbitant amount of money. Mm, that was nice of them, wasn't it? Yours didn't meet standards. Theirs met standards, and they were going to jack you up on the price. Also, currency. It talks about Jesus turning over the money changers table. In Jesus' day, there was three types of currency that was floating around Jerusalem. There was Roman money, there was Greek money, and there was Jewish money or local money. So you go to the temple, and you're going to buy a sacrifice. You had to use Jewish money. You're coming from another country you've got to get that currency exchanged there at the temple probably to do it. If you are a Jewish man of 20 or older, you've got to pay a temple tax. And so what happens? Here comes Merrick. He's from another country, but he worships God. He brings his Roman money in there, and when they're exchanging the money, they're cheating you on the exchange of the money. So they're making money. The priests are making money. The high, high priest are. The, the Roman leaders are. They're cheating people. And then you go over to Mark eleven sixteen, a little different nuance on it. Mark eleven sixteen, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What, what else was happening was Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, what was in between them was the temple, And so people were using the Court of Gentiles, the only place non-Jewish people could come to worship. They were using that as, a, as kind of a side street to, to bring. It'd be like somebody walking through coming through here in a few minutes, carrying a, uh, walking their dog and bringing their garbage. they're going to take it to the dump over there somewhere, and they just come walking through. And Jesus blew a gasket. The temple's a huge area. It's about 30 acres. This whole temple area, our property, Joshua, we said about four acres, so it's seven times the size of our property. But the only place a non-Jew can worship is being absolutely corrupted. In verse 13 through 15, look what Jesus does. He doesn't call a meeting. It's written, my house will be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. He overturned the tables. The blind and the lame came to the temple. He healed them. But when the chief priests saw and scribes saw the wonderful things Jesus did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, or praise to you, Jesus, they were indignant. Indignant means, man, they were hot. This is probably the only, this is how religious people do get hot. And they were like, we're going to get him. And boy, they got him before the week is over. How does that translate to us? I've heard some people say, well, we shouldn't sell sell T-shirts or books out there because that's money changing in the temple. That's not what that's about. This is corruption. This is about people saying, this is my temple. We lead it. We run it. We've got our traditions, and we're going to do whatever we want with it. We're not interested in what God's agenda. We're interested in our agenda. One scholar said it was an entitlement mentality. That I'm, oh, this is mine. Boy, that's rampant today. I mean, watch the news today. You see that in our country. But it's, it's, it's even very obvious in churches where people, we want this to be your church, but not your church or my church like this. Like, this is mine. And I'm going to do whatever I want here. And we're going to run it any way we want to run it. You want to have a bad church, you want to go to a bad church, just find one that's ran by selfish human agendas. It will not be a good place. And here's the second part of this that goes right with it. A lot of churches have just lost sight of their purpose. They've just absolutely lost sight of the purpose why God has left them here. Again, verse 13, my house will be called a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of crooks. I want this to be a place where God is worshiped and people are connected with God. And you look again in verse 15. People were praising Jesus, people were excited, great things were happening, and all they were were angry. See, they had made, they had made the temple about them. And a lot of times if we're not careful, we make the church about us. And I think the bigger a church gets, the easier it is to break some of that, but it's still always going to be prevalent. We lose sight of why God left us here. And what we're here for. I want to read this to you. This is, this is absolutely true church history about church leaders throughout the year and their view on beards. That's important, isn't it? It's in the New Testament a whole lot. Clement of Alexandria, who was about 150 years after Jesus, a church leader, said that the beard is a mark of a man. Therefore, it is unholy to shave your beard off. Hmm. Those of us who are beardless this morning are not godly, I guess. What I thought was funny about this is I actually had a great aunt in Arkansas growing up who had a goatee and a mustache, so she was manly, too. 400 years later, there was a rule passed that no no cleric should have long hair, but he shouldn't shave his beard. Yet 500 years later in England, the canons of Edgar say no priest should retain his beard. Have a beard, cut your beard, keep your beard, no beard. And then we have 2014 in West Monroe, Louisiana. And we have none other than Phil Robertson who says, the beard is back, amen. Hey, you know what the New Testament says about the beard and a minister? Zero, none, nada. Isn't that great? So what should we say about it? How about... Zero, none, nada. You see, when the church gets its purpose off track, the church derails. And it's not wonderful anymore. Any of y'all ever been in any non-wonderful churches? Tell me, am I speaking to anybody? Anybody know this except me? No one. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> that means this church is perfect because nobody's been in a bad church. A friend of mine years ago in Texas, he'd been at this church about a year. Lovely people, but they had been dead. They'd been dead. And one month, they had 20 people saved and baptized. One month. Now, to give you some context, they hadn't had 20 people saved and baptized in that church in the previous five years combined. They had a deacons meeting, and these deacons were good men. But that night, they went around the room, about 20 of them, and they all would express their opinion on different things. And this night, they were mad about the music. This was 20 years ago, and churches were struggling on the music. Got to sing hymns, got to sing choruses. Oh, they're singing choruses in hell and hymns in heaven, or they're singing choruses in heaven and hymns. You know, all that crazy stuff. He said they went around the room, and for one hour, every deacon griped about the music. It got to him, and he had guts. Here's what he said. He said, guys, we had 20 people saved last month and baptized. You had not had 20 people saved and baptized in five years. Not one of you said one thing about it. All you thought talked about was your preference of music was not being played. And he didn't even get fired. Isn't that amazing? In fact, they embraced what he said. They loved him, and he had a great ministry there. Hey, folks, if the church gets off purpose, it's done. It's only a matter of time before it's done. A guy named Christopher Wright, listen to this statement. It's deep, but it's really good. He said, God does not give a mission to the church. God formed the church for his mission. It's nuanced, but man, it's significant. A church doesn't just exist and say, hey, what should our mission be? No, God says, listen, I created you. I've got your mission. Your mission is for me and my causes. Listen, if a church doesn't do the right things, it'll fail. It won't exist in the future. Maybe a slow death, but it'll be a death. 35 years after this was happened, the temple was destroyed, and it's never been rebuilt in 2,000 years. And I'll tell you about our church here and about any church around. You get off mission. You get on selfish human agendas. You may be storing hay in the building in 20 years. But let's look at a positive thing real quick. Let's be a wonderful church. Help me on that. How many of you, whether it's this church or wherever you go, how many of you want to be a part of a wonderful church? Amen. No one wants to be a part of a bad church. And here's the great thing. It's God's will. It's God's will that that every church be a wonderful church. That means it's His will for us. Two things we have to do. Number one, really be about Jesus Christ. Isn't that strange to even have to say that? We want to be a great church. We've got to be about Jesus Christ. Verse 13, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. It's a, a church or the temple is a place for people of all ages to come and connect with God and get to know God. The church needs to be about Jesus. I love verse 15. These kids are praising Jesus. It saw the, the wonderful things he did. And the children were crying out, Hosanna, our praise to the son of David, who happens to be Jesus. Wow, isn't that great? Years ago in West Texas, and I always like to say this about West Texas, Texas is huge. Did y'all know that? You got on I-20 today and drove, you could drive for three weeks and you'd still be in Texas. Far West Texas, a church, was running about 100. They got up, they were doing great. Then they had a split and they dropped down to 10. You know what they split over? Where to put the piano. There was a group that wanted it on the right and a group on the left, and they tore the church up. If I would have been the pastor, I would have said, let's put the stinking piano right in the middle. I'll stand on it when I preach, but don't split over the piano. A church is about Jesus. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw people to me. We're going to lift up Jesus here. We're going to be about Jesus, and if we're a Jesus church, we'll be a wonderful church. Here's the second thing. The church needs to be about all people. We'll be a great church if we'll be about, Do you see that word all? That's key. A lot of people don't want to be about all people. My house will be called a house of prayer, and it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. In Jesus' day, if you had a handicap, you were kind of pushed to the side, not with Jesus. Again, the story is told in Mark. In Mark 11, verse 17, he gives a little nuance on this. And he was teaching them, said, so my house will be called a house of prayer. Look at this. For all nations. And I'm going to give you something deep if you're taking notes. The Greek word all. Spelled A-L-L. You ready? Well, you know what it means? It means all. Everybody. The word nations is not mysterious. It it doesn't just mean Chinese. It does. It doesn't mean just Americans. It does. It it means all people. And to the Jewish people, that was pretty radical. That meant for non-Jews and heathens and good people and bad people. Jesus said, my place is to be a place for everybody. Isn't that great? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Folks, I'm going to say some things, and I am not trying to be mean, but I'm going to be direct with you this morning. If you want to go to a church where everybody looks like you, you don't want to go to a church. You want to go to some club. A weird club, by the way, that I don't want to be a part of. A church ought to be for every ethnicity, every color, every type of person. No questions asked. We are here, by the way. We are absolutely. Let me tell you another thing. Church ought to be for Christians. You know that? i ought to be for lost people. I heard this. A pastor in Florida, he said, well, we don't really seek to reach lost people at our church. If you don't know what a lost person is, that's a non-Christian. I like to... How many of y'all blow gaskets like when you're reading something and you're screaming and nobody's listening but God and he's thinking, you're an idiot. A church that doesn't want to reach lost people is not a church. It's a bad Bible study. It's not even a good Bible study. Everybody in this room, you're either lost or you were lost. You get me? Aren't you glad somebody loved you enough to bring you to church, whether it was your mom or dad? This church here is going to be for saved people, lost people, and everybody in between. This church is for bad people too. Some of you are bad. How many of you used to be bad? Let's get some honesty here. My wife raised her hand. Lion is sin, isn't it? <laughs> this is such a great story. I think it's a great story. Tim Timmons, you never forget a name like that, do you? Tim Timmons, that's like me, me, Chrissy Chris. Tim Timmons, I, I don't know if he still is, but he pastored in California for years. When he was a young pastor at a small church, he joined a tennis club, and he, he didn't know anybody in the area, so you'd go, you'd sign up, they would assign you a partner. So he gets signed up to play tennis with a guy, and he notices the name. The guy's one of the leading producers of pornography in Southern California you know this story's gonna be good so they go out and they start volleying the ball around they introduce you know who they are and and uh, the guy says to Tim and Tim, says what do you do for a living because I'm a pastor he said the guy's like oh. you know who I am yep you know what I do yep you're a pastor yep you know what I do are we going to talk or are we going to play tennis? So they play tennis. They have a good time. They meet again next week and play. And the next week and the next week, they become friends. Tim's praying for him. He loves him. He's inviting him to church. The porno guy, he's not coming to church. He doesn't want to come to church. For about a year, this goes on. Then one Sunday morning, the porno guy shows up at church. And a little church person walks up to Tim and goes, Pastor, do you see who's sitting back over there? Bob, I'm not pointing at you. But do you see... (laughs) Do you see who's sitting back over there in the corner of the church? Pastor, yep, I do. Do you know what he does for a living? Yeah, I play tennis with him every week, and he turns and walks off. That's when churches got defibrillators in the church because she... And you know what? The porno guy became a Christian. Isn't that great? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. The worst drug dealer in Lincoln Parish, we want him here. I don't know if we got a porno dealer. We want them here. Now, listen, to become a Christian in our church, to join our church, you've got to become a Christian, which means you're going to profess that you're following Christ and that you have a desire to turn from your sins. In other words, if a guy's the leading drug dealer in Lincoln Parish, he needs to come and join and say, you know what, with the help of God, I'm giving that up. But we're all going to struggle. We've got to be a place for everybody, for all people. Chuck Smith was a pastor in California in the 60s when the hippie, the called the Jesus Movement, when a lot of hippies were becoming Christians. And they would come into church, and they didn't know how to come into church. You know, they hadn't been trained in it. And so they were coming in, and they were getting sand everywhere. And, and one of the leaders of the church said, Pastor Chuck, these hippies are coming in, and they're getting sand in the carpet. What do we need to do? They were wanting him to say, tell them to leave. Get their hair cut, clean up and come back. Chuck said, pull the carpet up. Are y'all with me? They want him to get rid of the hippies. Chuck said, let's get rid of the carpet. We don't want to intentionally destroy our building, but people are more important than our building. See, we're going to be a wonderful church, and we've got to be about Jesus, and we've got to be about all people. And I'm going to bring it together and just tell you this. A church built on these two things will be a wonderful, miraculous place. We will be. I'm not going to read it again. But when Jesus shows up in the temple, people are getting healed, people are getting saved, lives are being changed. You know what? When Jesus is turned loose in the church, as strange as that may sound and need to happen, when Jesus is turned loose in the church, it's wonderful. Let's turn him loose. Let's turn him loose. Let's be a wonderful church. I read this this week, and it's really encouraging to me. To be a great church for you, For your grandkids, your kids, for future generations, two things fundamentally have to happen. You've got to have a pastor and in a church our size, a staff that's willing to say, we'll do whatever it takes to reach people. We'll do whatever. We're imperfect, but I think you have that. The second part is you. You've got to have a majority of people. You're never going to have 100% in a church this size. You've got to have the majority of the people that are willing to say, Hey, preacher, we're with you. We want to do whatever it takes to be the church Jesus left us here to be. Will we be that? Let's pray. This morning, if you're a Christian, I'm going to challenge you more in a moment. I hope God's ringing your bell, and I hope you're ready to make some moves with him even today. If you're not a Christian, what you need more than anything else is Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're ready and willing, pray with me. Pray with me right now and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I want to turn from my sins. And Jesus, I accept that you're God's Son and that you died and that you arose for me. Come into my heart, Jesus. And I surrender my life to you. Let me have your attention. We're going to stand in a minute. Maybe you just prayed and asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Or maybe you're ready to do that. Would you come when we stand? Maybe you're not comfortable walking down in front of a lot of people. That's okay. I'll be at this door after church. There'll be other ministers around. But before you leave the building, settle the deal with you and Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you'd like to join our church. I've laid out to you who we want to be. Come help us be that. You can join. You can come when we stand and you can come and join. Are you again? You can do that after church. But do that if God's leading you to. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian. Many of you, you're members of our church and many of you are helping us be what we feel like we should be. Keep it up. Keep your foot on the pedal. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're you're, you're kind of apathetic. It's easy to get that way. You don't want to stand before God someday and say, you know what? I coasted for 10, 20, 30, 40 years when I could have helped the kingdom of God in my church be what it should be. Christian, come on. I don't think there's many here that are resistant to what God wants. But if you are, man, repent of that. Come and pray with a minister. Come pray at the altar. We'll be down here waiting on you. Let's stay.